Welcome to On The Record, a guide to English law, the legal podcast brought to you by Glazier Solicitors. Hello uh, and welcome to another edition of On The Record, uh, Glazier Solicitors uh, podcast on English law. I am joined by Michael Fletcher, the head of our litigation costs uh, department at Glazier's. My name is David Jones and I am the head of litigation. Uh, and I, my department and myself are Michael's biggest clients at, at the moment. We, whenever we have a piece of litigation, we get uh, Michael involved right at the start and right at the end and at all times in between to make sure that we are not only getting the very best results for our clients in terms of cost recovery, but we as a firm are also making as much profit as we can uh, legitimately through the litigation that we conduct successfully on behalf of our clients. I'm going to ask Mike some questions. I'm going to pretend that they're written down in front of me and that uh, I don't know the answers when the truth is I don't actually know the answers, uh, but I will be nodding sagely throughout. Uh, my first question, Mike, if please, is in relation to between the parties cost recovery. In multi-track litigation, when do I need to file and serve a cost budget? Well, uh, thank you for that introduction, David, and, and hello, everyone. With very few exemptions in multi-track litigation, which, for example, are on uh, mesothelioma claims in, in, in asbestos litigation or claims that are valued over £10 million, a cost budget is always required where a, a claim is proposed to be allocated to the multi-track. A cost budget is in the form of a precedent H, which divides the work the solicitor does into phases. Those phases are pre-action costs, issue statements of case, case management, disclosure, witness statements, expert reports, pre-trial review, trial preparation, trial, ADR and settlement. In addition to those standard phases, there are potential scope, uh, there is potential scope rather, contingencies of work, which would be more likely than not. Contingencies are included in a budget where they are more likely than not to happen. That, that's the legal test. And to give one example, mediation is often used uh, as a contingency. You will see provision for mediation in a cost budget. What you won't recover in a cost budget uh, as a contingency is work just thrown in to cover all potential litigious twists and terms. Uh, that is highly unlikely to be allowed by the cost managing judge. In terms of when uh, a cost budget must be served, this is absolutely essential for practitioners to know this. If, if people take one thing from this podcast today, please know this and, and, and take this away. Cost budget must be served and filed with the directions questionnaire if the stated claim on the claim form is less than £50,000. If the pleaded claim on the claim form is more than £50,000, then the cost budget must be served and filed not later than 21 days before the first listed case management conference. We, we know that all too well from the last week, don't we, uh, Mike, where you've managed to uh, do a CMC for us and one of the defendant's costs have been uh, thrown out and, and they'll, they've been sanctioned, haven't they, for not uh, complying with the cost budget? That's right. So what happens when the deadline is missed? This was uh, in, in the case, uh, as you say, where a defendant 
opposing one of our clients' claims was made subject to the automatic sanction in, in Civil Procedure Rule 3.14 because his, his solicitors didn't file and serve a cost budget. So irrespective of what happens in the case, he will not be able to recover any costs at all between the parties. So that's the reason that the, the, the deadlines are so crucial, because there is a, this automatic sanction in the rules that is a, a real trap for the unwary. And if a deadline is missed, then it's equally essential. I'm sure I'm sure nobody at Glazers would miss such a deadline. Um, it would never happen, would it, Mike? No, it would never happen. It would never happen at Glaziers. Trust us, we're lawyers. It would never happen at Glaziers. But if it happens elsewhere, and if it does happen elsewhere, surprisingly, this rule in the civil procedure rules is, is now nearly seven years old. In fact, it's more than seven years old, post the Jackson report. That makes me feel old. That does, Mike. I know. I know. Me too. Well, I was around for the Wolf report. and I'm not that old. The, the, report, the, the report before that. Uh, but if if a deadline is missed in terms of serving and filing a cost budget, then it's it's utterly crucial that an application is made straight away as soon as the mistake has come to the attention of the practitioner. An application must be made, and and I would say quite literally, stop what you're doing on other cases, drop everything, and prepare an application for relief from sanction. And if an application for relief from sanction is made, make it under CPL 3.9. There is a a quite a well-known now three-stage test that was part of the Court of Appeals decision in a case called Denton versus White. And the three-stage test is the significance and seriousness of the breach, the reasons for the breach, and whether it is just in all of the circumstances to grant relief. And the third limb of that test is, is really the catch-all part of the test, that even if the party in, in breach falls foul of the first of the two limbs, they can still gain relief on the, the third limb of the test, the, the catch-all uh, in all the circumstances test. But the way of making your application for relief from sanction far more likely to succeed is by making it promptly, by essentially setting out a witness statement from the solicitor, because the court does like to have evidence from the solicitor who has made the error uh, or, or overlooked the deadline. Uh, the court does appreciate that and set out why the mistake was made, accept blame where necessary, and throw yourself at the mercy of the court. And If, if there was a hearing, Mike, and I assume quite often there would be a hearing, would you advise that the person who's making that witness statement, the person who may have made the mistake or at least whose watch it was on, would you expect them to turn up just in case, as I've seen, when I've opposed an application of this type, I've seen the, the judge being quite interested in probing quite deeply and actually asking if the solicitor was in court and actually sort of asking them a few questions there and then. I, would you advise them to turn up? Yes, Absolutely. When we get back finally post-COVID-19 to normal face-to-face hearings, my advice in all relief from sanction applications or, or default applications would be for the advocate to take along the solicitor or, or theatre whose error it was or whose watch it was on. I, from experience, that's quite a powerful message to the court because it, it shows contrition. It shows that the theatre concerned is interested and it's not just 
an exercise in some barrister or in-house advocate, in my case, going along and, and, and doing his or her best. I think it's a powerful message for the fiona to go to sit behind, be in court, so the judge can see the level of seriousness with which the particular firm takes the, 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 the breach and, and also the, the respect for the court, the administration of justice. So absolutely, go with the fiona, argue the case in, in a temperate and matter-of-fact but also contrite way. Some people get relief from sanction, some don't. There are cases for and there are cases against in, in circumstances where budget deadlines have been missed. The most famous case was, of course, Andrew Mitchell. Of, uh, Clubgate one, Mike. Clubgate, Clubgate. He sued the Sun and his lawyers missed the deadline for their budget. He was refused relief from sanction by the master at the, at the first instance hearing. And, of course, he went up to the Court of Appeal and he was refused relief in the Court of Appeal. Denton versus White followed the Andrew Mitchell case and the Court of Appeal, in light of the adverse comment from the profession about the draconian nature of the Mitchell case, I think the Court of Appeal took the opportunity, as they put it, to clarify the law uh, in, in Denton. And that's where the three-stage test has arisen from. And De- Denton was several years ago now uh, and, and still prevails in most default applications, most uh, if not all, relief from sanction applications. So again, practitioners should read Denton and White, be familiar with the three-stage test and apply any facts to the judgment in that case in the unlikely event of ever having to apply for uh, relief from sanction. Now we've chatted about the worst case scenario uh, for a lawyer in terms of sanction. Uh, but why is it so important to have an accurate cost budget and cost management order? That's that's more about protecting yours and your clients' money rather than avoiding sanctions, isn't it? It is. It is. On the assumption that all of the rules have been complied with, it's absolutely essential that practitioner goes along to the case management and the cost management hearing with an accurate and realistic budget. There are law reports of, of, of firms, uh, cases uh, where that hasn't been done, and the court have given short shrift to those parties. One instance that comes to mind is where a defendant firm, in the words of the court, deliberately low-balled their cost budget, and they were criticised for doing that. Conversely, there's a quite a well-known case involving Queen's Park Rangers Football Club, where the court was equally critical, where the budget was grossly overstated. So it's it's a careful balance. That's why the cost budget has to be accurate, it has to be realistic, and it has to be well-pitched in terms of the estimated future work. And if you go along to the cost management hearing with such a budget, then you're far more likely to get a good year from the from the court, from the judge. And if that occurs, then the, the probability is you'll get a better outcome at court. And the importance of that is, is found in, in CPR 3.18, and what that says is that once the costs are budgeted, this is the future cost going forward, the court will, on any detailed assessment of costs or detailed assessment proceedings, the court will need good reason to depart from uh, any budgeted costs at detailed assessment. So in other words, if the costs are set at the case management stage for the estimated work, 
then the probability is that the receiving party will recover those costs between the parties because the paying party will have to demonstrate good reason to depart from that budgeted figure at any detailed assessment. So whilst I would, I would stop short of saying those costs would be in the bag because the good reason test is, is still there and the, the costs judged at uh, any detailed assessment has a discretion. It is a factor for the cost judge that costs have already been set at the budget stage. So in other words, the recovery is far more likely to be a good one if the, if the costs are budgeted pursuant to a, a well-drawn cost budget and the recovery is likely to be better and therefore your client is likely to recover more costs. And you might get, you might the client might come back for more, you never know. Well, the client may indeed, uh, absolutely. And Costs are, a, a, it's, a, it's a fact of litigation life that costs are significant sums of money. And there is sometimes a discrepancy between what a, a client has to pay their lawyer uh, and what they can recover from the other side. And the more that they can recover from the other side, the less of the discrepancy between what they then have to pay their lawyer to make up the shortfall. So it is essential for the client, the client's best interests to recover between the parties as much as you possibly can within obviously reasonable limits. So in essence, the client is not left out of pocket. Yeah. Uh, the, the classic case was, if anybody will remember, the Brian May case, where Brian May famously wrote to the Times to complain about the proportionality principle, where he only recovered a fraction of his between the parties' costs, yet he had to pay his lawyers a far greater sum. Brian May's point, quite understandably, was, well, I won my case. Why do I have to pay X amount to my lawyers, but I can only recover a fraction of that sum from the tortfeasor from the other side? And given that the principles of tort are to put the wronged party in the position they were to begin with, then one can see his point. So the conclusion really to that question, David, is it's essential that the cost management process from the party's perspective, the receiving party's perspective, is as accurate and as well pitched as possible to maximise recovery for your client uh, and to ensure that the client can ultimately recover costs uh, in the best way and, and the, the, the greatest amounts that are reasonable at the end of the claim. I've got a couple of uh, quick fire <clears throat> questions for you, Mike, in relation to sort of practical matters relation to, in relation to costs. If my client wins their case, can I get money on account of costs from the opponents before the between the parties uh, costs are agreed or assessed by the court? Yes, you can. The relevant rule is CPR 44.2 and the sub-rule is, is, is sub-rule 8. It is actually a presumption of the rule that the court will make the payment on account of costs uh, or will order the paying party to pay the receiving party an amount of, of costs on account before the detailed assessment is concluded. And the importance of that is obvious. It's a cash flow point. It enables the receiving party solicitor to get some money on account for their client pending the detailed assessment process. It's one of the, the rules in the CPR that receiving parties should really take advantage of. And what I would advise is all litigation should be settled, either by Tomlin order or consent order, with this clause in the order to say that the paying party pays the receiving party a sum of money on account of costs, it's normally the normal rule of thumb, the same the case law is, is 
of the drawn bill pending detailed assessment. And, and again, it, it's one of the perks of the CPR for receiving parties, and that should be taken advantage of to the full because it's there, it's there to be utilised by receiving parties. But often I see consent orders, orders that don't provide for it. And that's a constant surprise. I think um, people forget, Mike. I think people forget about it and just think it's, you know, isn't it brilliant? We've, we've managed to get a deal done, you know, walking away from the details sometimes. I agree. I agree. I, I think that people, and this is perhaps where cost lawyers and cost practitioners can really come in, that litigation solicitors sometimes lose sight of the cost aspect. They think, well, detailed assessment, I'll, I'll just pass that on to our costs. Uh, lawyer and they'll deal with costs whereas really they should be thinking ahead and think well what how can I put my cost lawyers in, a, in an advantageous position and, and often if you get money on account of costs that if, if the paying party is insurance backed they've got to get their checkbook out will instigate at that early stage of the detailed assessment procedure a cost discussion which could lead to settlement of costs in front order and therefore receiving parties got their money more quickly so i would always advocate use cpr 44.28 in your consent orders in your toddler orders no such provision of part 36 there is a high court decision which did surprise me at the time it says that cpr 44.2 doesn't apply where there is a part 36 acceptance but nevertheless if there was a part 36 acceptance what i would say to all litigators is still try and agree an interim payment on account or, if necessary, as well as the Part 36 acceptance, settle a claim by consent or Tomlin and get the interim payment clause in there. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think what, what I've always tended to do is, once you've got the Part 36 agreed, try and work on a different mechanic based on the, the what's been agreed, perhaps a settlement agreement which follows on from that, taking into account that the 30, Part 36 has been Actually, agreed. It might be that both parties want some additional points put in there, perhaps confidentiality, perhaps from the from the receiving end, and interim payments against uh, costs to be assessed. So I, I can see where you're coming from there. Yeah. What is the um? What one last one for you, Mike? What What is the detailed assessment procedure, please? Right. Well, the, again, the, the court rules are quite well defined in this respect. If a litigant wins their claim and settles pursuant to a Tomlin order, consent order on Part 36 acceptance, they will have three months to serve their bill of costs on the other side. The bill doesn't have to be filed at court at that stage, but the other side must be served with it within three months. Unlike the budget provisions, there's no automatic sanction for any failure to serve a bill within three months, but there, there will usually be a disallowance of interest should the matter get to detailed assessment. So again, I would strongly advocate that people observe the three-month deadline to ensure that the, the generous interest rate, which still prevails at 8%, is not undermined and, and, and not disallowed. So serve the bill within three months. The pain party then has 21 days to serve their written points of dispute and often that will be extended by agreement. I often extend grant extensions to parties for points of dispute because I want to talk to them. I want to try and settle the costs. I, I don't necessarily want to have to wait uh, several months for detailed assessment. Even if investors running, running at 8%, I still want to try and settle the costs to get the costs in. Cash flow reasons for 
resource reasons. I can, if I've settled a case, I can spend my time on another case. So I will often extend the uh, 21 days to try and prompt uh, my opponent into a discussion, which will lead to hopefully settlement. If that can't happen, uh, then uh, points of dispute are served. Again, they don't need to be filed at court. At this stage, it's just a, a process between the parties. Replies to points of dispute have to be served within 21 days of receipt of the points. And the reply should be on the same composite document as the points of dispute. So when the judge reads, it's a bit like a Scott schedule, for example, where you will see what the paying party is saying, what the receiving party is saying, and then there's provision for the judge to, to scribble in what his or her decision is. So that's the form of the points of dispute and replies. It, 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 again, it's a precedent uh, G. And a request for detailed assessment if one is necessary. And of course, all the while, the parties should be talking to each other to try and narrow issues, to discuss numbers and, and figures, to try and reach an agreement. Because the practical conclusion of not being able to reach an agreement is that they'll wait several months for detailed assessment. That is the reality of the court listing. And that's doesn't matter whether it's in the cost court in London or the Provincial courts, Manchester, Liverpool, Leeds, they're all the same, that they all have very long waiting lists for detailed assessment cases. So always try and settle, but if you can't settle, then the request for the detailed assessment must be within six months, six months of the claim settling. At that point, you will have to pay a court fee, which goes up in terms of the value of the bill, not on a percentage basis, but it, it's just set amounts, it's a tariff amount depending on, on how much the bill is. And then you will receive a, a hearing date, and then it's a case of, if you've been seeing party, that is, filing the relevant papers. I spent my morning this morning putting some papers together for a three-day hearing I've got in Birmingham next week, making sure that the judge has everything he needs to essentially find in our favour, because costs litigation is like any other kind of litigation. It's evidential and, and evidence-based. And if you don't have the evidence, the probability is, particularly on the standard basis of assessment, you won't get paid for that particular piece of work unless you can, as I've said, back it up with the evidence to demonstrate why you did that work and, and also the, the time spent on that work being uh, reasonable and proportionate. So it's important that the judge has the material with which to make the finding or findings and rulings that you seek on each element of the costs. And again, that's a skill that is cost lawyers will pick up over the years. And, and the file should be prepared in such a way that it's focused towards the points of dispute. So the points of dispute are easily answered at the detailed assessment hearing. And I can say, for example, next week in my case, well, judge, you have the answer to that point of dispute at tab X or in such and such a file. And I know that he knows, I know that he's got that piece of work to, to demonstrate why the point of dispute should be dismissed. So again, it's important. What the court won't want is the solicitor just to send a big box of paper with no tabbing, no index, but just a, a, a big pile of paper that the court will not like that, quite rightly, and receiving parties shouldn't do it. The, the file should always be well prepared. Uh, indexed, put in a manageable order that the judge can find things quickly 
and that's how a receiving party will get the best possible result at a detailed assessment hearing. Brilliant, thank you. Thanks very much for your time, Mike, and uh, your expertise. Uh, I'm sure we'll be covering other topics on other days. Thanks very much. Thank you.